How many times does the word decentralization show up in the Sadoshi white paper? I'm going to pause for a second and let people think. I thought to myself, it has to be 20 plus times. <laughs> the answer is zero. And what's interesting is it's the exact same thing for centralization as well. Like neither of those words are mentioned in the white paper. And it's because Satoshi was actually very concerned about building a secure system that worked. And decentralization or distribution of the nodes is only one really small component of that very complex system. Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains and the go-to place for everybody to learn about the latest innovations in Web3, NFTs, and the decentralized web. Join us each week to hear from experts, entrepreneurs, and the early stage investors that are building the future on the blockchain. Not only will this podcast help you understand why these emerging technologies are so important, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in the metaverse. GMGM, GM, thank you for tuning in to the Unstoppable Podcast. My name is Josh Gordon. I'm your host. We've got a great episode today with CEO of Unstoppable Domains, Matthew Gould. He's back for another episode with us. I'm stoked. We're going to talk about centralization versus decentralization and really dive into this topic that's so pertinent to the discussion around Web3, NFTs, and the metaverse. Welcome, Matt. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Glad to be here. Yeah, you know, we've been wanting to talk about this topic for a while. It's a discussion that goes on, you know, constantly online as people are weighing the pros and cons of you know, centralization versus decentralization. And something that I've really noticed is that a lot of the voices in the crypto world say we need to decentralize everything 100%, no ifs, ands, or buts. And, you know, personally, I think this is a little bit of an outdated criticism, and we need to be really strategic around where we apply like decentralized principles and implementations into like the systems and applications we're developing. It was episode 120 of the Unstoppable Pod a few episodes back with Yuri Lifshitz from SuperDAO. He really talked to me and opened my mind about a couple of things. And something he said is the decentralization like playbook, he was calling it like a playbook. You get to pick which plays you want to pull out of it, which ones you want to run right now. And you don't need to take every play out of the book necessarily to, you know, fall in line with some of these Web3 ethos. So I thought that was important you know, a really good distinction to make. And I know you've got a lot of thoughts on the topic yourself. I think that what's happened is, is people are trying to take one tool that's really good at solving one set of problems. And then once you have a, a good tool, it's like, oh, you know, once you have a hammer, everything's a nail. And they're trying to apply this one you know, set of tools to maybe a whole bunch of problems. And listen, it's good for a lot of things. And then in other places may not be as strong in deciding when and how and what parts of the system uh, you work to make more distributed is, is something that you should consider carefully. Yeah. And you know, we're about to start at the very high level, and I'm going to ask you some like high level questions before we get into the nitty gritty. But I just saw a recent tweet that I just wanted to highlight before we dive in. And I thought it really described centralization in an interesting way. It said there are three types of decentralization, and they, they vary in importance. And they are platform, application, and then project. So like your platform might be something like ETH, your application might be something like OpenSea or Unstoppable Domains. And at the project level, that's where you get things like CryptoPunks and, and board Apes, etc. So thinking about not only, you know, how you apply some of these, these plays of decentralization, but also, you know, at what level within the thing you're building is something to consider too. 
So starting off at the high level here, can you describe what is a decentralized system? So the classic uh, description of this always shows a, a network diagram. And what it will show you when you look at it up on Wikipedia or anywhere else is like you'll have a centralized system and that'll have like a hub in the middle and then a bunch of spokes going off of it. And then you have a decentralized system and then it'll look like there's a lot of different you know points on a graph and they're all connected in, a, in several different ways. And what that's trying to visualize is that where the decisions are made. So in a centralized system, it's more the decisions are made in one place and then those decisions are distributed out to all the different nodes. And then in more distributed or decentralized systems, the decisions are made in a lot of different places inside that network. And that information flows to the other nodes from all those different stakeholders. So, you know, it's where decisions are made and what are the checks on those decisions, like checks and balances within that system in order to make sure that good decisions are being made across the network. Yeah. And when you talk about like the checks and balances, why do why do some of those differences between the two systems really matter when it comes to internet products and you know services around digital identity and your data? Yeah, security. So the underlying thing behind it is always security. And it's really a trade-off between, like on the organizational level, between centralization and decentralization. It's not that one is better than the other in all cases. That's not true. And it's like, what is the most important thing to consider? And the answer to that is it, it depends. So if you look at you know, Bitcoin, for instance, they have um, a very large distribution of, of nodes. And that's for security reasons so that they don't want to have any one of the node operators be able to provide bad information. So you can imagine if there was a centralized decider for Bitcoin on like what the state of the block was, that person could actually lie and give bad information. But instead, they have a bunch of different node providers and they all say, hey, this is the current state of the blockchain. And then you take that information together from all those different players and then each person is acting as a check on the other to make sure that that system stays secure. So it's all about security. And, and that's why people care about the level of centralization or decentralization from a uh, software design perspective. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we talk about security, you know, something I hear a lot from friends and family that are not as crypto native right now and are learning is they see a lot of headlines around, around scams and hacks and stuff like that, like phishing attacks. And they get the feeling that like, you know, you just mentioned Bitcoin, like Bitcoin is not secure. And can you provide any clarification there around how, you know, we have a decentralized system that is secure that you're pointing out, yet a lot of the activities we do happen on centralized exchanges that are subject to, you know, potential hacks and, you know, misuse. This is actually kind of interesting because when you have a decentralized system of nodes or like a distributed system of nodes like Bitcoin does, and that determines who owns what, that means that if something goes wrong, like you get you lose your money for some reason on a transaction, there's nobody to go to as a central authority to have that transaction rolled back and have that money put back in your account. So from the user perspective, a lot of users are like, how is Bitcoin more secure? It's actually less secure for me because I get hacked, right? Or I lose my keys and I can't get my money back. So from their perspective, it feels less secure because you know the UX is bad for backups or they don't have the right security practices. But on a systems level, if you just go one more up, it's actually much more secure because you're unable to make a very big mistake where someone can hack the internal system and then just change everybody's balances. And for something like money, 
uh, or gold, right? Like Bitcoin is digital gold. Then it's very, very important that at the system level, uh, no one can just go in there and update. So that creates a set of security problems for users at a different level. So that's how those two kind of connect. Another area of confusion that I see a lot around people arguing for decentralization or like more decentralized uh, distributed decision-making processes is that this doesn't necessarily address things around market power. So, so, and I think that people also have that confusion. So like they're confused about the security aspect of decentralized systems, like that's supposed to be more secure. Why is it, why does people keep getting hacked and they lose their Bitcoin? And then they're also confused around, they think, oh, if it's decentralized, that must mean that there's a lot of decision makers and therefore, you know, it's more egalitarian. Well, that's not true either because you can look at the mining networks as a great example where there are really large concentrations of mining and hash power. In fact, Bitcoin, there's been several times when almost 50% of the hash power would have been controlled by one of the large mining groups. Like the decentralized distributed network of the nodes does not prevent monopolies or market power because that is more determined by what type of market you're in. So it's definitely new for people. But the thing that you're getting, and to restate here, is the security property. Like you can feel very secure that the Bitcoin in your wallet is yours and no one can take it from you unless you ask them. And that's a really important property, especially, you know, we've seen financial censorship happen very recently, you know, in world events. And I'm not taking an opinion on either side. I'm just saying that it, it is happening right now for billions of dollars for lots of different people all over the planet. You know, that's something to consider. You might want to have a neutral system in some cases, like for uh, central reserves or some central bank reserves or something like that. And being able to build on top of a decentralized system will guarantee that security principle. You bring up a really good point around how like the network, the network layer is super secure when it comes to your money and provably knowing that you own that and that can't be taken away. And it almost sounds like at the application layer for some of the exchanges we use or websites we use to trade or you know communication platforms that have phishing attacks that's where the security breakdowns happen and so important to draw that distinction and recognize that the fact that there are issues at the like application layer but also say you know this is something that's actively being worked on like every day by tons of smart people who who know we need to solve this problem to move forward because when you do have a, a money that can't be you know, refunded to your account, that can be, you know, it can be an issue at global scale, right? So is this decision on, you know, decentralization versus centralization permanent one? You just mentioned like Bitcoin and whatnot, and we, we've talked about implementations and, you know, applications and whatnot. Is, is that fixed? No. And it's because it's a network property. So as the participants in the network change and the composition of the network changes, then the level of decentralization or centralization in the network can change. And you, there's all sorts of problems that come up right now in this space around like civil resistance, you know, people having multiple accounts. And you can see this right now with coin voting, for instance, is another place where this becomes a problem inside of distributed systems. So like it really depends. You could have a fair distribution. So you could have an initial distribution that's fair. But if there are problems inside the system that over time, some people accumulate an advantage, they could get a larger than normal voice in expressing changes to the protocol going forward. So 
you not only do you have to make sure that your building system that initially is good, you also have to make sure that, that system is robust over time. And these systems of centralization and decentralization change as power moves around. A good example here is actually Ethereum itself. So Ethereum is currently centralizing on processing power in rollups. And you know, people aren't talking about this from this viewpoint, but if you look at it, what's happening now is we're now encouraging rollups on Ethereum, Ethereum's new scaling roadmap has rollups. And then what rollups are is a bunch of transactions are going to be processed and executed off chain. And then a proof of them is going to be published on chain. And rollups are great because they have fraud proofs or for ZK rollups, they have zero knowledge proofs. So you can feel very, very confident about the security of those transactions, even though they're being executed off chain and that's where the processing is being done. That's an example where we have a new technology, in this case, these rollups, and this technology is changing the balance of centralization and decentralization on the network for Ethereum. And you know the people at Ethereum have thought about this very carefully and they're adjusting the system to see what needs to be published on chain and what doesn't in order to keep those guarantees around security um, long-term. So it changes, yeah, it changes based on people, on who's in the network, and then just on the technology itself. Yeah, and you mentioned those like roll-up solutions. Now, is are there going to be multiple versions, like multiple different roll-ups that are providing those proofs that then get recorded on chain, or is the Ethereum community pushing for maybe like one or two roll-ups? And, and this is an area that I'm not fully, you know, caught up on yet. There's a couple right now, and I think it's. I think there's going to be lots more. I just think right now there's only several, or maybe a dozen or so, different companies working working on providing their rollups. And but I don't see a limitation there being a lot of those competing in the space. But still, it's a lot more concentrated than if everyone's publishing their transaction, like every user is publishing their transaction directly on L1. That's very very decentralized. But you know, if you then aggregate. 10,000 of those users together and put them on a single rollup that's doing all the centralized processing and publishing a proof, you know, that's, that's a little bit less. However, depending on the way the proofs work and fraud guarantees, so it's a balance is what I'm trying to say. The systems are trying to balance security versus throughput. And that's just a choice that people make because guess what? People want cheaper transactions. So that's part of the trade-off. Yeah, especially as we scale, like not only cheaper transactions, but transactions per second spin, you know, a strong conversation point. And so, how you adjust the tech as we all progress in this crypto space. It's interesting how you see this this conversation playing out really with one of the largest decentralized networks that we have in Ethereum. So why don't we want to just be fully decentralized? Well, and we just covered a lot of those. So it's expensive, <laughs> right? So if everyone has to run their own node, their own hardware, their own everything, it's expensive. And you know that's why people want to aggregate their transactions together onto one of these rollups. The other problem is if you have a decentralized system that is fixed and doesn't allow itself to be updated. Now, this is less of a problem because blockchains have forks and so forth, but they can be slower to update, right? So you've seen this already. A lot of blockchains are behind on hitting some of the roadmap goals, and it's very hard to coordinate everybody on a decentralized system to make decisions in the in the right way. It's also subject to politics, right? So we talked about this earlier, you know, the network composition changes that the people are coin voting or the weight of their voice changes over time. You could have the wrong people in charge of making decisions. One of the things that happened with Bitcoin is when Satoshi left, there was kind of a void in terms of leadership. And that really has an impact on the project because before then, you know, they had one clear leader who could really help direct 
uh, large change needed in that network. And then afterwards, they've had to fill in with a lot of other people on the protocol in order to make that work. So, and another criticism here is around regulations. Regulations are also not clear on decentralized systems yet. And that just needs, I think that'll get fixed, but that one needs to catch up as well. Yeah. And you also mentioned even like the share of voice earlier. I think we've even seen that with DAOs, how not only do you have the share of voice in terms of you can accumulate tokens to get more voting power, but we've also seen the implementation of delegation in DAOs recently. And I think that's I think that's super interesting because it's a lot to ask all users to vote on everything. But at the same time, you just as you almost describe Ethereum with the rollups going from centralized to decentralized with DAOs and governance voting, once you introduce delegation, you go from very decentralized to centralized again, right? And you know, all of a sudden you can have a couple people within a DAO having a very large majority of a vote. Yeah. And we're just getting started. The reason why you had people go to representative voting on DAOs is because it was so much more efficient to get voting done. It's faster and cheaper, right? It's the same reason why people want to aggregate their transactions for rollups, get them on the blockchain for cheaper and faster. It's like people want to aggregate their votes in these representative DAOs in order to make decisions more quickly. It's always a spectrum. So talking about spectrums, do you have any examples of a centralization spectrum when it's applied to like businesses or other network models? I think that maybe the most centralized uh, system is where you have a single like dictator like system where one person is deciding and then one person owns everything and then allocates. And that would be a very like communist system almost right on, on one side of it. Cause there's one decision maker or one group of deciders uh, and then they allocate what everyone does beneath them all the way down to the very bottom. And then you could have a very decentralized system. And my favorite is actually market capitalism. <laughs> and we've been experiencing that in the West for the past several hundred years. And it works really, really well when, and the idea for market capitalism is that people closest to the problem are the ones that solve it. So you can decide to start your own small business. You know, the butcher can decide how much they want to sell their goods for. The shoemaker can decide how much they want to sell their shoes for. They can decide how many shoes they want to make. And this is a very decentralized system because all the decisions, like if we're looking at the nodes on the graph, we're pushing it so everybody can make their own decisions as much as possible. And we have found that the level of creativity the level of innovation and the overall level of wealth does so much better if you can push more of that ownership, decision-making, rewards, all the way down to the individual level. So the more you can embrace individual freedoms, all the way from you know just basic human freedoms, you know life, liberty, <laughs> pursuit of happiness, and you know things like privacy and property rights, all these things down to those individuals, and then they can make decisions and bubble that up to the top. That seems to be very effective. So I would say like the market capitalism that we're experiencing right now, um, outside of obviously some monopolies who are abusing their power, is a really good example of a real decentralized system that's super complex. I can't think of a bigger one. Yeah. And you talked about like security when it came to decentralized systems just a minute ago. What about incentives when it comes to, you know, especially around capitalism and, and like the kind of the the business networks you see this being applied to? How do how do you think about incentives in this kind of centralized structure? Mm, so if you add or remove different 
levels of centralization to a system, you're going to result in different incentive structures for different people inside of that system. So a good example, maybe a negative example of this is when you have a representative democracy where you vote in for your representative or whatever, well, you're not voting on every issue anymore because so you've given up a little bit of your uh, democratic and your really decentralized power and you've given that to a representative. And now the representative is thinking of their own interests a little bit more in, in this case than just the person's interest who voted for them. So you can see a lot of politicians and you know maybe they do things that are good for themselves instead of the people that they represent in some cases. And so that's a very common one that I think a lot of people experience is they're like, why doesn't my politician represent my interest? And it's like, well, they're only representing your interest every two years when you vote them in. And then slowly over time, they care more about their own interest while they're you know, voting through policies. And then they, you know, get reset again when they come back and try to win your vote the next time. And this is the power of having systems that are more capable of taking input directly from users and then aggregating that input up so that you can then have a vote. Markets do this through pricing because everyone just buys what they want and they spend how much they want. And so people can kind of weigh their votes through markets by weighing it. Politics is obviously much more complicated for a lot of really good and important reasons. We don't want people to just be able to buy uh, their politicians because that can result in some other problems. Everyone gets one vote, one voice, try to keep it equal. But that creates this problem where there's not necessarily incentive alignment all the time between your representative and what you would want them to do. So there's an example when you remove different levels of centralization to a system. And then just, you know, on a local level, I have a lot more input on my local politicians and my government ones because I'm less aggregated. And that means that there's more direct correlation between one vote and one decision outcome. So it affects incentives. Let's see if we can think of one on a market model. Oh, here's a, here's a good one for markets is power, right? So in terms of like electricity or oil or whatever. Right now, the world is realizing that if you have, you know, these very complex supply chains for energy, like oil, and, and currently everyone's getting oil from Russia, and instead of having more decentralized ways of pr producing power or more ways of producing power, then you become dependent on these particular actors inside the system. And then it can create situations where you get stuck because you're really dependent on this one person or this uh, one group of people for a resource is very important. So this is happening in supply chains right now and, and causing some issues here in the United States and Europe, especially around oil. You know, it's almost like the centralized system that creates those dependencies, it really is fine and it works and it's okay all the way up until you have a problem with it. And then all of a sudden, that's when you feel the effects of the system at large that you're working within. That's been something that I've been trying to explain to like friends around our data online, talking about platform risk when it comes to like social media platforms and how, you know, we've seen very large figures getting taken off of or banned from accounts. And all of a sudden, you know, you think that you own, my one friend just told me a couple of days ago over the weekend, he said, you know, I own my Twitter account. And I said, do you really though? You know, if, if we've seen, ex-presidents get taken off and celebrities get suspended and whatnot, like, do you own it? And then that's where that centralized system, you know, comes to a head all of a sudden. And that's a great example because you can also imagine where you can break off a piece of that centralized system so that, you know, you could still have Twitter 
but you could allow the user profiles to be broken off from Twitter and then portable across those different applications. And then you know you you would own that Twitter handle, and then that would give you more power as you move around. And that's why you can redesign systems to be, and you know, like we were talking about earlier, like Ethereum has new technology and now it has rollups, so they have a different centralization model. Well, Web3 is a big deal because we have a new model for how uh, data can move around with users and that could also change the incentives in a very positive way yeah well okay i want to get into a little bit of a quick breakdown we just talked a lot about decentralization and centralization i want to do a fun i know you have a fun trivia question for us so let's do that and then i've got some more questions on it before we move on to a slightly different topic but matt can you please hit us with this trivia question because this blew my mind yeah, yeah. So how many times does the word decentralization show up in the Satoshi white paper? I'm going to pause for a second and let people think. I thought to myself, it has to be 20 plus times. <laughs> and the answer is zero. And what's interesting is it's the exact same thing for centralization as well. Like neither of those words are mentioned in the white paper. And it's because Satoshi was actually very concerned about building a secure system that worked. And decentralization or distribution of the nodes is only one really small component of that very complex system. So if you go all the way back to the Satoshi white paper, the you know decentralization is really just a small part of the system uh, concerned with security. And it's not even at times the critical part, right? Like monopoly power or concentration of mining or issues around leadership or making decisions on, on code and, and who's the person who determines, you know, if we go to larger block sizes or not, those become even more important than maybe the design of the node network. I think that really highlights how this topic that is so contentiously debated online and between people building and, and collecting and creating and like NFTs and Web3, you know, to step back and think about how, you know, it's not mentioned in the Satoshi white paper, which doesn't mean it's not important, but we really need to think about that critically and figure out where it applies to. So we talked a lot about why decentralization and centralization were good. Can you please give us a recap here in almost a, a bullet point you know, succinct way on the reasons they're good again, so we can wrap this topic up nicely. So decentralization is good for security. And that's why Bitcoin has a, a lot of nodes because it creates ways for people to create checks and balances against each other to make sure they're telling the truth. It lowers dependency costs in the system. So if one part of the system goes down, the other parts still work. So if one Bitcoin node goes offline, the other ones are still there. So that makes it more secure. It creates efficiency at the local level. So, you know, in, if you can pass decision making down to the people who are closest to the problem, then they're going to make a better decision. If you're bottoms up instead of top down, you're going to get better results. And that's you know, market capitalism is a good example of that. It improves innovation as well at the local level because you're now pushing those decisions down to the local level. It gives voice to people who are close to the problem. And it also protects minority opinions inside uh, of the subsystems. And you know, if you have a system that is very secure for individuals on the individual level that can prevent them from being censored or other types of problems, then you know those minority voices who sometimes get discriminated against have much stronger protection. So like you know, from financial repression, for instance. So that's decentralization. And then on the other side of the coin, centralization, like what is that good for? Well, it lowers costs a lot. You know, ACH payments in the US are free and you know, Bitcoin payment is $10 on transaction fees. It also creates efficiency at the macro level. So if you have a 
a big problem that needs to be solved really quickly. Like, hey, we have to prepare for a war. If you have some sort of centralized authority, uh, like the president, who can then line everybody up and, and get people moving in the right direction very, very quickly, that's important because sometimes you don't have enough time to wait for the answer to bubble up. You just need to make a decision. It improves innovation at the macro level, and that goes along with you know, the efficiency at the macro level. And then it, it also can protect different subsystems from each other. So it's not really good at protecting individual rights so much, but it is better at protecting group rights. And like when you aggregate those up, so the representatives, for instance, are able to protect their rights of their specific groups. So I would say like voting rights are a good example here. Um, it's like ensuring standards across the system. So in, in the US as another example, we have like federal rules around voting that mean that voting has to be at least as good as this, or you could have federal standards for regulations around aircraft and airlines so that they have a certain level of, of safety. So that's at the macro level. So that's what you get between those two. And if you and build a good system, it's going to be balanced where you're going to have decentralized decision-making at the local level. And then you're still going to allow macro decisions to be made very quickly when you need to, you know, specifically in times of uh, crisis. Yeah, no, great breakdown there. I felt like we talked about it really in depth. And so getting that quick, you know, breakdown of each was helpful for me to listen to back again. And yeah, your comment on, on the balance, I think really walks us into the next thing we want to talk about, which is looking at different companies in the crypto and Web3 and NFT space and kind of talk about how we see that balance playing out between the two. Are you down for that? Yeah, I mean, and I think crypto is a great place and because people are experimenting a lot here. So we actually have a lot of options to kind of look through. Yeah. So, all right, let's start with maybe the biggest Web3 crypto company, which is Coinbase and their their decentralized counterpart Uniswap. So, you know, Coinbase, I think this one's just so interesting because, you know, they established the most trusted exchange for crypto in the world. They built a brand, helped onboard millions. And then on the flip side, we have Uniswap, which is a decentralized exchange. And, you know, they did get venture capital backing. They allow people to trade, you know, in a, in a decentralized way. So, yeah, what, when you look at those two and compare them, what do you learn from each? And like, what's your takeaway here? Because, you know, I'd, I'd say the, the broader community fully supports Coinbase, but Coinbase is a centralized company, right? Yeah. And I think this is a good one because Coinbase has been very successful at bridging, right, between different systems. So they're able to get people on from traditional finance systems into the crypto world. And they're one of the best people to say thanks to for the 50 million plus people that they've gotten to get their first cryptocurrency. And they continue to grow super fast. So I think they're more likely to onboard more people than almost any other crypto app in the space. And then if you look at someone like Uniswap, I would say that Uniswap is probably, out of 100 users that use Uniswap, probably only one of those Uniswap onboarded to crypto, if not less, right? Because all those people already had crypto when they're interacting with Uniswap. And also the numbers are just a lot lower. You know, they have a couple million users versus Coinbase has 50 million plus on their way to 100 million. Another one is the UX. So Coinbase is just significantly better at handling UX for users. And again, it's a commitment to bridging the old systems and the new system. So I think this is kind of a pattern that you'll see over and over again, where decentralized companies are not as good at solving UX problems. They're not as good at solving bridging uh, between different types of communities. In the case of Coinbase, it's teaching people about crypto. And that's a pattern I expect to play out like basically forever. 
Yeah. You bring up such a good point about the onboarding, and I hadn't quite thought of that distinction between the two, how the centralized one will often be the onboarder versus the decentralized one. And I think that kind of makes sense too. Like as a a crypto user and someone who's deep in NFTs myself, I found that I'm starting on the centralized platform, getting experience, and then through my exposure, then hear about the decentralized ones, and then I check them out. I don't know if I've ever started from the decentralized one. So yeah, great point there. I also had an interesting interaction over the weekend. I used both Coinbase and Uniswap. I I was able to claim Ape tokens from that, you know, from the the board Ape Yacht Club and their their coin drop that happened last week. I claimed my tokens and I sent them to Coinbase because I wanted to sell some. And Coinbase didn't allow selling yet. And I was like, oh my gosh are my coins locked right now? Can I even send them back out of my wallet because the ape is kind of locked down at the moment? And then I was able to send them to Uniswap where I was able to you know, swap some ape to ETH. So I had a little bit of hands-on with both. The decentralized platform was able to iterate a little quickly or more quickly you know, by getting liquidity and allow trading. But my first thought did go to Coinbase still. So that was a, that was a good one. And you're going to keep seeing this in the space. So you have like Coinbase on one hand and you have Uniswap on the other. You also have like BlockFi for lending, right? And they're more centralized and then or, or traditional corporate structure. And then you have Aave on the other hand. And then you have something like OpenSea, which is a traditional VC-backed company. And then there's LooksRare, which is more community-led. This pattern is happening and it's also iterating too because there's new ones coming up that are actually even between those two spaces. So you mentioned the, the ape, the board apes were like ape DAO and they're talking about like how Yuga, I think they're the owners, are going to be, you know, running one part of that brand and they're going to focus on NFT projects or the metaverse and partnerships and live in, in real life events. And then you're going to have the DAO focus on community led initiatives. So that's a nice little melding of those two where they have like one central brand and then they actually have one part that's going to be more traditional corporate and then one part that's going to be more of this uh, DAO token model that, so that they can try to get the bo- best of both worlds. And this spectrum is merging and iterating. And I mean, I don't know, there's a lot of plays in the DAO playbook and companies are taking two plays from it, five plays from it, 10 plays from it, depending on their needs to do whatever is best for their users. And even with the DAO, something you talk about Ape DAO, something I thought was pretty interesting was that it has a like a board, kind of like a board of directors. I think it's made up of five, six people right now. And they were determined from the start by Yuga Labs. Their tenure only lasts for six months. And then at the end of six months, it's up to voting from the DAO at large and token holders. So even the creation of this DAO from, you know, the jump doesn't start 100% centralized, you know, it still has guidance, right? And I think that's, that guidance is really helpful for kickstarting some of these like Web3 initiatives that really shouldn't be taken for granted. Yeah. And then, I mean, let's just throw out some more companies in the space and just talk about them and their different levels of control. And so you'll have things out there like Dapper Labs, for instance, and they were awesome. You know, I think with NBA Top Shot, they brought on probably a million people to NFTs that never would have heard of them at all before ever. You have people like uh, Gary V's whole organization and 
you know, they're kind of like consensus for NFTs is maybe a funny way of saying that. And they're onboarding just a ton of people into NFTs through all their contacts and networks out there. Um, you'll you'll have some of these organizations that are like Graph Protocol, and I think they were on a previous podcast here, and they provide APIs right through a DAO network for all these different ones. And there's a couple of companies that are doing that now. And that's really interesting because like an API is a server endpoint. Like that's definitely a centralized thing, but they created a network of nodes in order to try to help maybe determine or verify those endpoints. So, and there's just this collection of it. I know you're into music. So you tell me, what do you see in a, a music NFTs? Yeah, you know, there, there's a lot of music NFT companies popping up that are all creating different kind of marketplaces. So your catalog, Sound XYZ, Mint Songs, and then we've got Royal, Arpeggi Labs, and all taking slightly different approaches, but it's almost the differences is more in the product versus, I would say, the centralization versus decentralization component. Arpeggi Labs may be the most decentralized. Just I say that because they're putting... They're putting music on chain, minting beats on chain that can then be composable and used to create other songs. They're looking into how to really link those stems of the music. But what I'm seeing from the other companies is that they're really operating as centralized organizations, just making NFT-based and crypto-based products that are actually on the blockchain. So you know the whole community supports them, and yet... They're still operating as, you know, from the leadership level, from the hiring and HR level, all centralized. But that's one of the plays from the playbook. So like at Unstoppable, you know, we take a couple of plays from the playbook too. And so ownership is one of the plays from the playbook. Like we give you full ownership of your domain NFT, you know, with no renewal fees. Um, this is like owning a song, right? That you buy from someone else who, when you're minting it, you know, that NFT song to your wallet, like you actually own it. It's, or, you know, you know your NFT for your board ape and all the rights associated with that. Giving full ownership to people is one of the plays out of the Web3 playbook um, that we we have taken. Uh, it's also like owning an in-game item as another one. So, and then open platform is another piece. So we have, you know, Asophile Domains is a traditional company, but we build crypto blockchain-based products, which are on these decentralized blockchains. So anyone can start building tools for UD names without our permission. And, you know, one that just happened this week is someone made a Twitter name banner creator, right? And so you can put your name in and create a banner. People have also created other projects to work with Unstoppable Domains, however they want to do it. And we can't stop them. So, you know, one of the big problems with centralized products like uh, Facebook's APIs or Twitter's APIs or at the Apple Store is they can kick developers off, right? If they make something they don't like, well, we can't do that on Unstoppable Domains. So if you want to build whatever you want with your domain name and offer that service to others, we can't. We can't stop you. So those are just two of the plays that we've taken where we are. So, and and then I guess the other kind of area to go into is like the user perspective. So we have, you know, on the company side, it's just, there's going to be, there's going to be tens of thousands of crypto and blockchain companies, if not millions, there, there may already be. And they're going to take all different types of good ideas from the playbook here for Web3 and then incorporate them into their business models in all sorts of different ways. The reason why they're going to do that is because they're going to want to make life better for users. When you bring up users, how are you seeing the the decentralized plays helping them? And also, what in which ways are some of the Web3 companies right now that are really pushing for some of the decentralized initiatives hurting users in, in these early days? 
So on the helping side, ownership is definitely number one thing that people got from it. And then I would say number two would be the ability to portably move. You can send your Bitcoin to any wallet without worry about it being stopped or you know having any middlemen. So removing that middleman in between that network has been really, those have been the big ones so far as like ownership and then censorship resistance on, on your financial transactions. And then the ways that it's hurt, it's been UX, right? We talked about this earlier, uh, the UX security, right? For the individual, not for the network, but for the individual, because they're not as good at managing the private keys. Uh, customer support, I mean, who do you reach out to for help when you lose your keys? These are the areas that have caused the most friction, I think so far. So these are all problems that are being worked on in crypto and it's a trade-off. Yeah. And on top of that, I'd, you know, I'd say the regulation, we saw the executive order, you know, come out in terms of hearing from the White House a few weeks ago, and it's now going to be kicking off a probably pretty lengthy process of research. And, and we're yet to hear what the outcomes of that of that research really will be. But the executive order read to be pretty pro-crypto, but I'd say, you know, getting that regulation in place is going to be the next thing that will kick off, you know, answers to a lot of these companies trying to figure out how they incorporate decentralization into, you know, the products and services they're offering. Ownership is really the big question there. And really what people are asking is like, how do users get the benefit of the upside, right, in these cases. And and that's where regulation is going to come in and I think going to get better. But yeah, it's still behind. It's quarter crypto that you want to own stuff. Regulators need to come in here and help figure out exactly all the rules around that. Uh, but I'm pretty optimistic. 100%. I think it will be really interesting from a consumer perspective, how like the market starts reacting once you realize you can own things versus just be part of the subscription based model that I think a lot of SaaS companies apply to today. And, and we're kind of used to. And even when you're in that subscription model, you're still locked in and subject to losing your service, you know, at really no ability to push back on price. Just the other day, I saw my net my Netflix price per month went up and all I can do is, you know, click accept and keep paying, right? So when we transfer an ownership, I think that'll be pretty exciting for a lot of people. And now I want you to talk about a little bit more. You mentioned Unstoppable just a minute ago when we were doing the company comparison. What other areas are we incorporating like decentralization into, you know, the company and also centralization to really benefit the user and the product that we're creating here? I mentioned it earlier. The most important part is that you own your domain inside your own wallet. So that's about, that is the most decentralized you can get. Like that's on the blockchain. Like each NFT domain is its own entity. You own it with your key and you can decide what to do with it. That's the piece that we think is most important, making sure we get that out to users. On the side of the pieces that are uh, centralized, like we have authoritative minting and that makes it a lot easier and cheaper to get a domain. So this is the UX component. So, you know, a lot like Coinbase makes it super easy for your mom to sign up or your dad to sign up and buy their very first Bitcoin. Ensemble Domains makes it very easy to go to our website and buy your first NFT domain or even get your first NFT domain for free in certain wallets. So because we have that authoritative minting that makes that part a lot cheaper and easier, we can also ship product a lot faster because our decision-making for how we were building this protocol for the system is uh, done internally at Unstoppable, the company. And so we don't have to get a DAO vote, for instance, to make a decision on an update to the protocol. We do what we think is best based on the feedback that we're getting from the market. So, the, and I would say that Unstoppable Domains is just one 
player in the market. And we have our own take on how we think NFT domains are going to play out. And we're competing with a bunch of other services in the market as well. And so users actually have much better choices that are going to get better over time because of that market competition that's happening between these different products. So when you're thinking about different products and apps that you're using, you want to think about the different areas where they've chosen to be more centralized versus decentralized, why they did that, what's the advantages for those systems, and how it can help out. At a high level for Unsupple Domains, we are we think of ourselves as an open core model, and that's a business model where your core product, in this case, the NFT domains, are on an open uh, platform, in our case, on the Polygon blockchain right now. So anyone can go in and read the contracts. And you can then build whatever you want to interact with it. And we can't stop you. Like that was another part of our decentralized playbook that we took, which is any app developer can come in and build what they want. You know, we can't kick you off the app store. That's just one of the ways that open core models works. And the way that we intend to monetize is to build uh, services and products around NFT domains. So a good example of that recently would be Humanity Check, for instance. I mean, with Humanity Check and and you mentioned like the the way that we can ship products fast because of like the structure of our business and the way we can hire people. It's been pretty amazing to see just how fast we're shipping new feature updates and not just updates, but new features as well. And along with the hiring. And I think we just had an all hands recently and you mentioned we brought on like 70 people in the last three months. And the ability to do that you know, you could put out, you could put out bounties and have people work for, you know, rewards and whatnot, but hiring people and, and giving them benefits and really letting people dive in full, like head first into web three and have, have the comfortability of working at a company, I think is really understated as well. When you, when you compare the two differences between a, a centralized and a decentralized company. And I think that these things are going to blend and merge. Yeah, I really like your example of Bored Apes and what they're doing because with uh, Yuga and how they are you know, melding these two things where you have like a corporate entity doing a huge part of the function for the brand and then you have the community participating and in, in adding to a different one. In the future, if we fast forward, let's call it seven years and, and regulators have figured out this is how we can treat equity inside these small startups so that users can get a piece. This is how we can treat ownership of digital items in a game. You know, imagine someone has a, a sword from uh, one of these blockchain games that sells for $5 million in 2030. What are they going to pay their taxes on it, right? Like these types of questions are kind of funny right now. Everyone thinks they're laughable, but I mean, these questions are coming. And once these things are worked out, you're going to be able to build systems that will help answer the question, like how do users get the benefit from the upside of the platform? How do employees get the upside? You know, How do all the stakeholders, the people participating in the network get the upside, the creators? Um, how do the people who are working on you know, listing things on the marketplace, like you saw that, that conversation come up with OpenSea, how can all these different players be incentivized properly using this new technology to line up those incentives um, so that it's more fair for everyone? And uh, it's gonna be a mixed bag of all sorts of different combinations. And I think that there's gonna be some areas that are gonna be more centralized than others. And then there's gonna be a lot of innovation on trying to figure out how to distribute the uh, rewards from the system to as many people as possible where to make sure that they're just incentives are aligned properly. Yeah, I'm really excited to see that play out as as someone who's experienced what it what it feels like to not just be a user, but to be an owner and a participator in some of the 
applications, networks, protocols that I'm, you know, participating in. It's it's exciting and and really makes me like a, a believer and a supporter of, you know, said system. So Matt, I, I really appreciate your time and your, your deep thought around this topic. Is there anything else you want to end with? I would say, you know, if you're an engineer and you want to build great things in crypto, the goal is to get the right balance of all the parts. And uh, there are going to be a lot more crypto companies than we talked about today. And there's going to be a lot more traditional companies that have crypto products. And there's just going to be a lot more ways to get different exposure to crypto assets. There's a Cambrian explosion here in you know, how to build these systems, how to distribute the rewards. Keep an open mind for how to build these systems and let's see what works. Totally. Well, thanks so much for your time today. If you're listening to the Unstoppable podcast, I would really appreciate it if you could drop a review. Subscribe to the podcast. It helps us reach more Web3 curious people. If you're listening on YouTube, subscribing and liking goes a long way. And, you know, I also want to throw out a challenge to anyone listening. If you can tell me how many times we said the word system in this podcast, tag me on Twitter. I want to know. I think we might have we might have hit the hundred mark. So but, you know, this was a complex conversation. So, Matt, thanks so much. Can't wait to have you again on the podcast and dive into another Web3 topic. So until then, we'll see you next week on another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please leave us a review, subscribe, and share this with your friends. And remember, this conversation doesn't have to end here. Tweet us your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. I look forward to hearing from you and thank you so much for listening.